Paleo Hackers, how you doing today? With me on the other end is Dr. Jillian Tita. She's a naturopathic physician and author of the Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. North Carolina, Shark City, what up, Dr. Tita? <laughs> Hey, Clark. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love what you guys do at PaleoHack. Great. Well, I'm serious. Here's a three-hour call. We're going to get this wrap in. So I hope you got some food <laughs> with your water over there because this is a long Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go too. And, and digestion is what we're talking about today. Um, if you guys couldn't tell based on the book title, we've had some digestive guests on here before. Um, I was thinking about it before the call. We just had Cynthia Krista Orecchio on here to talk about all like the five steps of healing your gut. Uh, we had Dr. Yes. O'Brien to talk about gluten sensitivities, what that does to the gut. We had uh, Jordan from SCD, some acronym, um, yes. Lifestyle. He was a great dude. Uh, talk about just irritable bowel and a lot of things with that. And so I'm fascinated to get into more of general gut health, problems with the gut, healing the gut. Um, links to other areas in our body and why it's so important. So, Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, so I guess to start, the best thing that I can think of to sort of like begin the discussion is that, you know, so often people think that the digestive system is just the avenue through which we absorb the food that we eat. However, it's so much more than that. I actually call the gut central station because there's not any other system or cell in the body that the gastrointestinal system is not in touch with and communicating with every single day. So we've got direct links to the immune system. In fact, about two-thirds of the immune system actually lives in specialized tissue in the gastrointestinal system. We've got the neurological system, right? Our nerves. Our gut actually has its own brain, which is in sort of a bimodal communication with our central nervous system and divisions of our nervous system. And then we've got the impacts that it has on our hormonal or our endocrine system, whereby many hormones and neurotransmitters and communicatory chemicals are built, recycled, resorbed in the GI system itself. So in this way, a lot of, a lot of conditions that we might think have roots of, at other places actually are being, if not driven directly from the gut, can greatly be helped by addressing gastrointestinal health. A lot going on. I mean, what you mentioned, yeah, like 70% of your immune system in your gut, like you said, two-thirds, um, what, a, a hundred trillion cells, yeah. more cell, more bacteria than cells, rather, in your gut, um, hormonal yes. production, right? A lot, yes. It's a lot yes, of, actually, yeah. our, um, Go for it. our microbiome, what you were just getting at, the hundred trillion cells, you know, they actually, so it's this colony that is collectively known as the microbiome, and they are this, like, vast, uh, colony of bacteria, mostly beneficial, that are housed in our large intestine. And it's really neat. Your, your readers and your listeners are super savvy, so I'm sure they already know this, but they actually outnumber our human cells 10 to 1. So this body, we are 10 times more bacterial than we are human. And they have a huge variety of of functions that they that they do and not favors but just functions that they they do for us in terms of not just digestion but also immune health and killing pathogens and killing bad guys 
and even things like your blood lipids and your blood pressure and then mood. Yeah. So, that, yeah, there's a lot going on. Is this how you are at, at parties when you get invited and they ask you what you do? You just launch into the gut <laughs> and start spewing out? Like, let me tell you about gluten sensitivity and yeah. the microbiome. Yeah. You know those party crackers <laughs> are eating right now? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's fascinating. I mean, I think a lot of people are getting more educated. You know, there's more books coming out, especially with the whole gluten-free movement, uh, low-carb yes. movement. All this stuff is getting at gut health, really. And people are starting to link it up, like when I eat um, fast food, or even even not fast food, just everyday food that we once thought as healthy may not make me feel as good as I thought it did. Or why do I still feel sluggish if I'm trying to eat clean from Whole Foods? And all these different missing links – and a lot of it can be linked to the gut. Um, and yes. and for sure, I mean, you know, one thing that just blew my mind when I was doing research and, you know, I get on these calls, but I forget a lot of the stuff and I go back and revisit it. And there's a lot of little facts and tidbits, but I was researching online and it was, oh, yeah, that happens. It was something like 80 to 90 percent of your serotonin is produced in your guts, the neurotransmitter for uh, mood, you know, SSRIs, what they pump into them. It's just in your gut right mm -hmm. there. Um, so that's pretty yes. accurate, right? That's what you've seen. Well, you know, it's really interesting about that. I don't know if you guys follow uh, Sean Croxton's work in underground wellness, but he just put on a huge, um, one of his second opinion series called the depression sessions. And in it um, talked all about depression. I was a guest on the, I was a guest expert lecturer there and he interviewed me and that was exactly what we talked about Clark was mm. the fat the the role of serotonin and the microbiome that resides in the gut in relationship to mental and emotional health and you're exactly right about 90% of our body's serotonin is produced in the gut and also the receptors yeah. for serotonin yeah. are also really, really dense in the, in the gastrointestinal system. And, and it's very interesting. I'm just going to take it a couple steps forward. The cells are the cells in our microbiome, the bacteria there, there's a certain strain that are called spore forming bacteria. Okay. Specifically the strains that I'm thinking of are called actinobacter. These strains talk to the cells that make the serotonin in your gut. So there's these specialized cells that are called EC or enterochromatin cells. I mean, it's just a, it's just an acronym. It's just a name, but those are the specific cells that are actually making serotonin in the gut. Serotonin has its reputation for being like a feel good, you know, happy hormone. And it is the target of much um, pharmaceutical attention in terms of mind and emotions and these types of things. However, serotonin is really important for gastrointestinal health. Particularly, serotonin has the action of initiating or starting peristalsis. And peristalsis is that rhythmical muscular contraction that propels food down and out and is responsible for keeping us regular. And I know this isn't like a cocktail party conversation, you know, like talking about like regularity and like pooping. But if we have too much serotonin, we tend to be really fast digesters, more prone to loose stool. If we are not making enough or if we're having some type of like dysfunctional signaling there, we're more prone to constipation. And of course, someone with something like IBS or a functional gastrointestinal disorder 
they have a lot of issues with serotonin signaling. And by supporting those serotonin pathways, we actually can get good gastrointestinal results. And there's a specific there's a specific receptor. So there's not just one serotonin receptor. There's like a wide variety of them. And one researcher joked that it's like ants at a picnic. You know, like every time you turn around, there's yeah. there's more of yeah. them. But there's one in particular that is the sort of um, focus or or what the researchers are honing in for for functional bowel disease like chronic constipation or like something like IBS. Okay, so loose stools means you're happy. I thought it meant I just drank too much coffee. <laughs> No. I'm just a happy well, guy all be- the time. Every morning, I'm really happy. Yeah, loose stool. So, like anything else, you know, it's important to know like what the history is. So, like, when did if someone just has like loose stool sort of out of the blue, it probably has to do with some type of dietary indiscretion uh, and or food poisoning, or hopefully not a parasite on board. But chronic diarrhea, we do have to look at serotonin signaling. Yeah, yeah, that's not just a happy person. That's actually a very unhappy person. Yeah, that. Uh- yeah. telling you it's you know i have a lot of clients who they um you know i really feel for them they feel they can't leave their house you know they they don't yeah. have any answers and they can't leave their house without like extreme feelings of of urgency and it only takes like one time you know to not make it where you got to be and you know that's kind of that so i feel for people that struggle with that for sure i mean it's a huge thing though the gut brain connection right the second brain talking about neurotransmitters yes. talking about gut um gut health and making yourself feel better um in turn yes. and so what are some of the things that disrupt that gut brain connection or gut health cool that's that's a great question so um for your readers or your listeners i guess we're listening now and not reading the um and watchers they're act- watching you and remember watch- that julian there's something called the enteric nervous system. It's the second brain, okay? And enteric just means like gut, okay? So it's a plexus of nerves that starts at the base of the esophagus, at the lower esophagus, and goes all the way down to the anus. This neural tissue, this nervous tissue, is second only to the spinal cord. So it has as much tissue as the spinal cord. It's really second to the brain. So it's an enormous amount of nervous tissue, and it's just in the gut. And this is really interesting on the part of Mother Nature in terms of our, if we had to have all of the nerves that were responsible for digestion going up the spinal cord and into the brain, our abdomens, our midsections would be so thick that we wouldn't even be able to bend over to tie our shoes. So the solution was to put this brain, this all this nervous tissue in our actual gut. And it communicates with, even though it's independent from, the central nervous system. So the brain and the spinal cord and all the peripheral nerves. So that's why people who are in um, accidents and have their spinal cord severed, they yeah. still can digest yeah. their food. So that's another sort of elegant solution of, of mother nature. Now, the good news is that you know, like other systems in our body, the enteric brain is very, the enteric nervous system, excuse me, is very flexible. So it can actually take a fair amount of abuse. To your question, things that can disrupt it would, would go something like this. We've, we would have like overexposure to foods that we're sensitive to, whether, whether they're inherently allergenic, like something, you know, like gluten, of course, is like the, the one that everybody's talking about now, but also things like artificial colors, um, lots of pesticides, herbicides, things like that. So 
eating foods that are inherently problematic and or overconsuming foods that you're sensitive to, whether you know whether you know if you're sensitive to them or not, that can disrupt that communication. Um, and it's interesting because that communication not just is communicating with the nervous system, but also what we were talking about in the very start of the call, right? Like the, the immune system and the hormonal system, like it's all connected like this big old web. So if you have infection in the microbiome, right? Like if you have bad guys in there, that's something that's called dysbiosis. Dysbiosis is a very general term for sort of like an imbalance of good guys and bad guys. Yeah. That that infection can create an inflammatory response, which over time can disrupt the second brain. If someone is not producing enough of uh, what I call digestive fire, which is enzymes and acid to break down and actually like break down their foods into absorbable particles, that can create an imbalance. And then, of course, we can get into things like the real stressors, like being chronically underslept yeah. or being chronically overtrained, not having, having a any. Job uh, sucks. Having a job that sucks or always ha or like always having time constraints where like you have 10 things to do, but you only have time to do four things. And so Toxic really nothing. Relationships. Yeah, all that Toxic stuff, relationships, you know? not having good boundaries, um, even like negative self-talk, yeah. um, being sedentary, binge drinking, all of those things can can disrupt that gut brain axis. And then, of course, things like, you know, certain types of pharmaceutical drugs like NSAIDs, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, birth control, opiates, you know, think, um, things that are often used for pain. And, of course, antibiotics, right? Because the antibiotics, they are, they're great at what they do. They can kill bacteria, but they're non-discriminating killers. So they'll kill your good guys just as readily as they'll kill your bad guys. And then, um, you know, hand sanitizers, like all the triclosan mm. that we use that Americans, we are like obsessed. Yeah. With some sanitizing gel. I mean, like, we have, like, a love affair. We love it. It's on the receptionist desk, and you just, you just get a little pump, and it smells really good, and makes your hands feel all dried out, and you associate that in your mind <laughs> with, like, being clean. And so you get that positive reinforcement of, oh, now I'm clean, and, you know, I'm a clean one, and everything's okay, I can't get sick. And I think that's yeah. what people are hooked on, is that assurance of... Okay, now I did something good. It's like this little reward you get when you slide your hand under the automatic dispenser and bzzz, and it comes out and you just, <laughs> you know rub it around and you get that reinforced. I get it too. I'm like, okay, yeah, I did something good for myself. Now I'm healthy, right? But it's ridiculous. Except, well, except it's not really. I mean, we are covered in bacteria, so it's it it doesn't really do anything beyond what washing your hands with like warm water and soap with like a lot of this kind of action does. And overuse of hand sanitizers, and, and with this, I'm just talking about like general people. I'm not talking about hospital workers or people who are exposed to like a lot of sick people and things like that. But for us, gen you know, like the general lay population, us citizens, we don't need to be using these hand sanitizing gels. And unfortunately, they are contributing to antibiotic resistance and also certain types of environmental allergies and sensitivities. So, um, you know, I, I counsel all of my clients to phase those things out of their life. And it's one thing, like if you're at an airport or something and you yeah. use the hand sanitizer, like that's a little bit different. I'm talking about like daily use for your average sort of person five times a day i was in yeah. southeast asia thailand cambodia Laos, um for two three months i just got back about a month ago and over there what blew my mind was 
there's no soap anywhere. They don't use soap. They don't use hand sanitizers. They go to the bathroom and they don't, which is, you know, in those countries was kind of gross because already, you know, there's open sewage, there's garbage everywhere. You can't find trash cans. So people just put it on the side of the road in bundles and that's their trash can. Just, you know, okay, bundle right here. That's, that's trash can and by the tree. And so in those places, hand sanitizer definitely makes sense. So you don't get, you know, MRSA or, or, you know, malaria over there and stuff like that. Yeah. Over in the United States, when we got trash cans on every corner and bathrooms that's running soap and all that stuff, it's like we're still super paranoid about extra, extra hand sanitization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is re- – and again, it's sort of a fallacy. And we've got like basic sanitation, which it sounds like where you are is kind of like lacking even that. Yeah. And then you have almost like neuroses that's not really based on facts, more just like our own sort of neuroses. Yeah, good distinction. And so before we get on to like, you know, external things that we take in that disrupt our gut biome, I just wanted to acknowledge that piece you were on uh, for about five minutes or so that was really good about, you know, what we take in in terms of food and nutrition and how that affects our gut. And it is what you eat primarily that affects your gut health. And that was a really good piece. And it's very true. So getting the diet down, getting uh, the right exercise, the right sleep. Now moving on to something more external like antibiotics and hand sanitizers and even uh, stress and all that stuff. I just, again, came back from Southeast Asia, was scuba diving and had a foot infection, a, a cut that got infected. Um, and it's, I came back here and I was so against antibiotics and in, until my foot literally almost fell off. It was so red. And I mean, I, you know, I went into the doctor and they're like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. But, you know, right. I, I'd been in this community and I'm so, like, in my mind, so not the person to take antibiotics because I know what it does to me. But I got on them and within three days, my foot was way better. And within a week, it was completely gone. And I was like, man, yeah. this, is, this is a miracle. Like, this this really did save my butt. And this is something I can now see the benefits of. And I used yes. to I used to preach so hardly against it. And now I'm almost like... I'm I'm still like yeah I don't use it for everything but I'm a lot more pro antibiotics now when you have a condition that requires them. Yeah, I want to be super clear for your audience. I'm not anti antibiotic, right. but what I am for is the judicious use, the appropriate use of antibiotics. So the exact example that you gave is a perfect example of the judicious use of antibiotics. You had an infection, you really needed them, they helped you. So what we've got, particularly in America, and particularly, unfortunately, with the pediatric population, is we have up to 40% of antibiotic prescriptions not being necessary, either being prescribed for something that they're not indicated for or being prescribed for viral infections, which they don't even work for. You know, unfortunately, in this country, we have this, like, this culture of, like, going to the doctor and, like, telling them that we want antibiotics and doctors just get burned out and they're like, well, fine, here you go. So when, when I have a client who is debating on getting on antibiotics for whatever, whether it's a urinary tract infection or acne or anything, um, one, you want to absolutely make sure that you have something that an antibiotic is warranted for. And then also like, say if there's like an upper respiratory infection, if you can culture like a a sample of either sputum or urine or whatever to figure out what antibiotic to use, that's even better because that lets you sort of um, prevent being jumped around antibiotic to antibiotic until you find out 
what works. And then for people who do take antibiotics, there's a lot that you can do to help offset any potentially negative side effects from antibiotics. I always have people take a probiotic alongside. The antibiotic does not kill all the probiotics and the probiotics do not disrupt the efficacy of the antibiotic, but the probiotics do help offset any potential side effects of antibiotics like antibiotic associated diarrhea is a huge one and of course C. diff infection. So what I have people do is find a probiotic that has at least 20 billion with a B CFUs of that's colony forming units of beneficial bacteria primarily of the lactobacillus and bifidobacter strains and then I have them take that for three times the length of the antibiotic round. So if you were on a seven-day course of your antibiotic, I'd have you take it for three weeks. And of course, one yeah. of those weeks hopefully would be you know the same time that you're taking the antibiotic. Yeah, I, I, I was an idiot and I thought in my mind, you know, classic Clark Mail logic was saying if it's – an antibiotic and I take a probiotic, then it'll cancel each other out and it won't work. Oh, yeah. So I'm not going to take the probiotic. And, <laughs> you know, I researched it later on and found that that was a bad move. But, um, you know, I got, I got the whole food 42 billion one. It was the most expensive one. So it must work the best, right? <laughs> I splurged. I went for it. It was like Good. 50 bucks, like a dollar a pill or something ridiculous. I know. Uh, yeah. Some are really expensive. Some probiotics are really expensive. Sure. So, but- Okay, so how sh- how should I be using that now that I got off my antibiotics? Like, what should I be doing now to kind of restore my gut health? So, do you still have your probiotics? Yeah, it's in the fridge. I would um, I would just if you have, do you have like a full bottle worth, like I, thirty I, days? Yeah, it was thirty days, and I'm taking three a day, so I think I'm on day number eight or something. So I'm running out. Okay, I mean, I would take it for twenty one days, and then also in the meantime, I would be eating fermented foods periodically. Okay. Yeah. I, like, I, I do some kombucha. Uh, mm-hmm. I brew it myself, the big scoby. Uh, I've done some sauerkraut. What about like fermented dairy? Are you a fan of that? It depends. If So in people who tolerate dairy well, absolutely I'm a fan. Um, in people who don't to- tolerate dairy well, I often will actually have them challenge yogurt separately because the fermented, you know, the action of the bacteria actually helps make the yogurt more digestible and less allergenic. You know, it, it destroys a lot of the lactose and also the casein, which are sort of the problems um, in those foods. So we just take that on sort of an individual case-by-case basis. But for those who tolerate it well, yes. I mean, with dairy products, I always um, recommend that people buy organic. Again, because in conventionally raised uh, dairy cows, you're getting a lot of antibiotic residue and also hormonal residue in those products. And then in things like butter, you even have things like PCBs and other like sort of pollutants that bioaccumulate and biomagnify. So if you're going to go dairy, always go organic, but know if you're sensitive to it or not. But I'm not one of these people that's like, nobody can eat dairy ever. I mean, that just, there's really no scientific evidence for that. And then there's, you know, I know like you see that on certain blogs and stuff like that, but just because we repeat something on blogs doesn't mean it's true or you know, applicable or the people on blogs aren't always doing their research, you know, and they're just going off what other people have done and what other people do. And they're perpetuating that. But, um, okay. So to get out of antibiotics and getting, restoring the gut after you essentially wipe it out into more of a day to day gut health, what can we do for our gut health? Do you have any sort of 
rituals you do or kind of hacks that you do or, or things that are really important that Jillian does day to day for her gut health? For, so the best things to do for your gut really are to eat a high vegetable diet. So like a wide variety of veggies and fruits that helps keep your gut microbiome robust and diverse. And a diverse microbiome is a healthy one that can resist infection. Um, and then I eat fermented foods as well. If, if, however, so, that, so that's basically what I do for my gut health. And I make sure I do things like I go for my leisure walks and I de-stress and I like get sleep and those types okay. of things. So it was, it was vegetables, fermented food, and uh, what was the third one? Walking? Like a leisure walk leisure every walk. day yeah. with my dogs. Also, um, things that I tell people to do are sit down when you eat and chew your food really well. Because that helps, that helps put less biomechanical stress on the stomach yeah. and then less biochemical stress on the stomach and pancreas in terms of it has to mash all the food up and then use our enzyme systems, our enzymes and acid to break it down even further. So, you know, using our good table manners, you know, sitting down when you eat, eating slowly, you know, not wolfing down your food, not talking with your, you know, not talking with your mouthful because that introduces a lot of air. Yeah. So really taking the time when you're eating to create sort of like a more of like a relaxed environment. Okay. So lots of things you can do day to day that doesn't involve supplementation and expensive yeah. $42 billion, I mean, 42 billion bacteria, Whole Foods, $50 <laughs> probiotics. <laughs> Um, yes. so lots of stuff, you know, I've heard supplements are big, like, uh, glutamine is really big for restoring gut health. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's some other supplements out there for just general gut health. Have you seen any of those work with clients? Are you a fan of those? Sure. So here, so here's the thing. If we're talking about just your average everyday person that does not have any digestive symptoms yeah. and has a normal digestive system, no unrest, they don't need supplementation. They don't really need to do anything in particular besides just the normal things that they do to maintain their health. However, people that do have digestive complaints or do have chronic sort of unremitting gut symptoms, that does require a little bit more what I would consider attention. Um, and then in cases like that, I use a, sort of like a multifaceted approach. So that starts with, again, back to diet, like eating a diet that is appropriate for you, finding and eliminating any food sensitivities. That's the first piece. Second piece is making sure that the food that you're eating, you're actually breaking it down. So a lot of times, depending on what's going on and what the symptoms are, um, if there's lots of like gas and bloating and undigested food in the stool and like chronic yeast infections, I'll often supplement with enzymes and sometimes even acid. So helping the body actually break down the food. Then we support the microbiome, probably with probiotics, and also rule out infections. So rule out things like, are there bad bacteria on board? Are there parasites present? Is there yeast present? Is there fungus present? Is there small intestine bacterial overgrowth present? Then the next sort of layer is dealing with the lining of the gut, right? So from esophagus all the way down to large intestine. So making sure there's no, you know, gastritis or ulcer or leaky gut or diverticulitis or all those types of things. And then to your point earlier about the glutamine, that's where all of those gut restorative nutrients come into play. Things like 
glutamine, things like N-acetylglucosamine, things like zinc carnosine. And then there's a ton of herbs, anything from like ginger to licorice to cat's claw to okra to chamomile, like all of those. There's a huge plethora of things that can be used to help with the lining of the gut. And in many cases, and I would say like the majority of cases when I'm working with someone, we do address every single, all of those aspects. And then of course, all the de-stressing stuff. So when you do all of those things together, then you're going to enact the best sort of like change and cure and symptom reduction. So for someone with gut symptoms and problems, yes, I do do supplementation. Dr. Jen, let's talk about coffee for a second. That seems to be, I mean, for me, 100%. I love coffee. I'm in Seattle. Everyone knows that on this call. Um, But a lot of people, too, a lot of people are still, you know, they eat clean, they eat healthy, they're health freaks, but coffee is a big part of their life. And it's not so much it tastes good, but it's, it's a ritual. You know, you wake up every morning and you brew it and you see the pot. I mean, it's consistent and you love it and you've grown up with it. What's it doing to our gut? It's got to be doing something. Well, here's the thing from person to person, individual to individual, the ability to metabolize and detoxify coffee can vary like up to a thousand fold. So everybody has a very unique uh, way that they can handle coffee and caffeine. So me, I'm a coffee drinker. I can, I can drink a whole French press and like fall asleep like a baby. I have some clients who they can't tolerate any coffee at all and can barely tolerate caffeine. This has a lot to do with our ability to detoxify it. So coffee is one of those things where there's, there's plenty of evidence to show that it enhances cognitive and physical performance. The bitter compounds in coffee actually act like a digestive tonic where, you know, a lot of people report it helps them go in the morning. Um, But then of course, like anything else, you know, coffee can be overdone. So if people are using it as a crutch to like stay awake, then that's where we sort of get into, into problems. And that's a little bit problematic. So coffee is a highly, highly individual, um, you know, topic. Right. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it makes sense. I mean, I I love that answer because we haven't had it. It's always been either a dogmatic, like, no, you can't have coffee. How dare you, you unhealthy freak. Or it's been, yeah, you can have as much coffee as you want. Just make sure to put pounds of butter in it and coconut oil, you yeah. know? And it's just like, yeah. and buy this really expensive mycotoxin-free coffee, you know? Like, yeah. it, only from this one source. But with coffee, I mean, yeah, it's individual. It's case by case. It depends. Um, but is it doing anything to our gut mucosa down there? Um, I've heard so- it thins it. I would say no. So I would say like if you're a co- if you if you're like a regular coffee drinker, okay, um, and you're having like two to three cups a day, that's not going to be adversely affecting your gut. Now, if you get into a situation where I don't know, say you get dysbiosis or you have or like you have you're in some accident or some virus or there's some trauma, could coffee play a part in worsening something? Sure. Um, in terms of thinning mucosa, are you talking about the actual cellular layer or are you talking about the mucus layer that sits on top? I heard that it can thin the cellular layer, so like the villi, microvilli, and thin the mucosa so you can't digest things as well. And so then that leads to issues like leaky gut and you're mm-hmm. more uh, susceptible to those uh, kinds of like autoimmune diseases. So here's something that's cool. The um, the lining of the small intestine is actually only one cell layer thick. <laughs> so, the villi? So, 
Yeah. So they're cells, and then the cells have villi on the end. Now, gluten, of course, in people with celiac disease, they can, you can have what's called villus atrophy and blunting there. Mm-hmm. But I have never, and I would love, like, if you have the research or one of your guests has the yeah. research about coffee thinning the villi, I would love to see that. To me, honestly, that sounds like um, natural health guru kind yeah. of dogma babble i mean science as they would call it um so i don't you know so so that's my opinion on that is coffee appropriate for everybody i mean i'm not saying that either but it is highly individual and also i think it's important you know for me like the coffee that i buy it's organic it's shade grown it's like even fair trade fair wage so there's a lot you know there's a lot of considerations there but i would you will never hear out of my mouth don't drink coffee because it thins your mucosa good that's Dr. Jillian busting the myths on the show. I like it. Getting to the truth. Did you hear that, yeah. guys? <laughs> Keep drinking your coffee. Just make sure it's it's the Whole Foods organic, shade grown, yeah. fair trade certified, no soy, no dairy, no gluten. Yeah. Good well, stuff. I am one of those people. I am one of those people. I do throw some grass fed butter in my coffee. I I love it. I mean, yeah. I don't necessarily like buy the you know the brand like the you know the MCT oil, but I do love grass fed butter and and coconut oil in my coffee. I can't do the coconut oil, but I'm with you on the butter occasionally. Yeah, it froths it up real nice. The IKEA little four dollar blender or whatever that you can stick in there and and blend it right up. So I put the Vitamix. Oh, Vitamix is good. I don't have a Vitamix. I got a magic bullet because I'm cheap. And I saw the infomercial (laughs) when I was like ten, and I got convinced. (laughs) You're like sold. Buying it. It's two in the morning. Why not? I get one for free too. It's funny how everything becomes clear at 2 in the morning, right? (laughs) All my spending habits happen at 2 a.m. Yeah, for sure. So while I have you for, uh, you know, we could end it, but I really want to hit on the big one, the elephant in the room. Anytime you talk about gut, anytime you talk about diet, you talk about gluten. seems to be the thing that we're all up in a wad about these days um you know people are talking that it exists and then people are saying it doesn't exist people are saying it's a scam a fad great the best thing i've ever done what's your take so here's the thing even the um we've got celiac disease which is a genetic autoimmune condition whereby upon exposure to gluten you have an immune reaction that destroys those villi okay We've got celiac disease, and then we've got something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I'm assuming that's what you're, you know, saying all the controversy is about. Yeah. Even yeah. the super conservative, like, Journal of Gastroenterology acknowledges that non-celiac gluten sensitivity exists. They also, in the same breath, say that we do not have great testing options for it yet. And so what, what I do in my practice is... If people are willing to test, you know, what we can do that and what we often do IgG testing, which is different from other types of testing. Like when most people go to the allergist, they get the little pricks on their skin, yeah. right? Yeah. And then they say, oh, you don't have any food allergies, but that's checking for IgE sensitivity. There's another whole different way that you can be sensitive to a food and that's through IgG and there's actually a lot of other ways too. And that's, um, a, that's so, an immune response, right? So if you eat something yes. that's not good for you or not, you're not supposed to be eating like gluten, they're testing to see if you react to it. If you're making antibodies to making it. Making yes. antibodies to it. Yes. But that does not capture 
all forms of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So the test is not perfect. So what I do and what is considered like in my community, like the gold standard would be to actually do an elimination diet. And then I take it a step further where if someone's coming in and they have like all these like, again, gut symptoms, we'll do an elimination diet. And then we'll also do all of those other gut repair things in conjunction with the elimination. So we do the enzymes and we do the probiotics and we do the gut lining stuff and we're doing all the de-stressing stuff. And by giving the, giving the body like a break mm. from gluten and then doing all of those other things that kind of like spruce it up, you're, it's almost like you're starting with a clean slate. And so from that platform, you have a great opportunity to actually see what gluten is doing to you. So then I have people challenge it back in. And then your body, I mean, you'll, you'll know fairly quickly if you can handle gluten or not. Because some people will be sensitive to gluten because maybe they're not digesting it. Maybe they're not, when I say digesting, I mean, maybe they're not breaking it down enzymatically well, or maybe they have leaky gut already in place, or maybe they have dysbiosis in place. And those things are what's driving the gluten sensitivity, not the gluten itself. And so that's why we do all of those steps in addition to taking a break. And then we challenge in. So I'm not one of these people that says that everybody has to be off gluten. I mean, that's crazy. That's just kind of like saying everybody has to be off coffee. Yeah. So I'm not one of these people that's, that will say that. Um, and that's just as silly as saying the only people who are sensitive to gluten are the ones that have celiac disease. Like both are equally like intellectually dishonest statements. Um, so that's the, that's the answer to that question. Really it definitely exists. Yeah. Sorry, uh, I was going to let you finish. It definitely exists. Like non-celiac gluten sensitivity absolutely exists. Absolutely. And I love the distinction you made between, uh, so two things, the first two, you know, non-celiac gluten sensitivity versus the actual genetic celiac disease, which my girlfriend's mom has, and her hair was falling out and completely bald, you know, completely gone, got off of gluten. And now she has almost a full set of hair looks great. You wouldn't think twice. I mean, amazing things happen when you have that and you, you go gluten free. Um, yes. So crazy things can happen like that. But then the non-celiac gluten sensitivity is kind of what we're talking about again with the health community. And what you said that I want to reiterate is the testing. The testing's just not there. I mean, they take they take a snapshot of your gut. You know, they can take some of that, look at it under a microscope and basically tell you if you have celiac or not. But they can't mm-hmm. really test you uh, for just general intolerances like with the antibody test, like you were saying. I think uh, Dr. O'Brien was talking for every... I think it was a one to eight ratio. So one person who has gluten sensitivities manifests themselves in their gut. Eight people have it in their brain. I could mm-hmm. be butchering that, but it was at least one to four, if not one to eight. Um, so way more people have this manifesting in different ways than just mm-hmm. their gut or just the common mm-hmm. like indigestion symptoms. It could be yes. brain fog. It could be depression. Yes. It could be anxiety. It could be acne. It can be all this other stuff. Well, and that's why the elimination challenge diet is so important because when you bring that back in, you are looking for a return of or an exacerbation of or a worsening of symptoms. And I don't just mean gut symptoms. I mean things like, you know, rashes and itchiness and and joint pain and, and acne and headache and brain fog and all of those things that you just mentioned because the gut is connected to all of those other systems symptoms can manifest anywhere. And that's why removing a potentially problematic food 
sprucing up your whole system and then challenging it back in is the most surefire way to know whether you actually are sensitive to not. To me, that's more valuable. It takes time, but it's way more valuable and more accurate than any test. No test is perfect. Yeah. Uh, and, and gluten intolerance and just going gluten-free seems to be, you know, the Hollywood trend that had it going for a while and it had the momentum. And you see all these fancy Whole Foods products with, like, the green labels yes. and all this natural stuff. But then you look at the additives some of them use, not the ones in Whole Foods because they have stricter standards, but the ones in these other stores. And some of the additives, man, are even worse than, than gluten. We're talking chemicals and the, the way they, they process the gluten out of it and they can be worse for you and leave you more hungry and so you eat more and you get fatter and I mean let's face it a lot of people hear about gluten free and they want to lose weight they want to get the fat off they want to drop the last 10 pounds and they think that their friend did gluten free and it worked great so I'm going to do gluten free and they end up just replacing the blueberry muffins with the gluten free pancakes and more sugar and more this so there's a right and a wrong way to do it Um, what do you say is the right way to go gluten-free or to eliminate gluten outside of the elimination diet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny because a lot of those gluten-free products, like especially like the baked goods, do have less fiber and less protein and more carbohydrate than their gluten-containing counterparts because gluten is a protein. And um, a lot of the gluten substitutes like potato and rice and sorghum, like they're just higher, you know, they just have higher starch. So to me, like going gluten-free is not like just an invitation to make a lateral shift to all like gluten-free baked goods. It's actually an invitation to maybe eat, have more of an emphasis on foods that are appropriate for us. Again, like vegetables, fruits, you know, clean meats, like lean meats, seafood. It's more of a, it's more of an invitation to eat a more appropriate or fitting diet for you, which does look like lots of veggies, lots of fruit, like good healthy proteins, maybe a little bit of dairy if they can tolerate it, and then maybe more hypoallergenic grain if they can tolerate it. Which, so is, I good, don't... which is good because that's, that's why it's hard to see if gluten-free is actually making you lose the weight if you do it right or if it's just the fact that you're now eating a bit low carb and you're eating a lot healthier and you feel a lot better from the healthier foods than you did from the not-so-pasta, bread, uh, sugar foods, all that stuff. So it's hard right, to really right. disti- distinguish between like – Gluten-free, if you know N equals one with gluten-free is making me lose the weight and feel better, or if it's eating the food that's making me lose the weight and feel better. Well, it's funny. A lot of people with celiac disease, once they're diagnosed and once they start going gluten-free, they actually will put on some weight because they're finally absorbing their nutrition again. Hmm. So, And then some people who go gluten-free because now they're just eating like gluten-free pasta and gluten-free baked goods, like they'll put on weight because now they've like added, you know, 200 grams of starch every other day to their, you know, to their diet. And that will definitely, you know, that definitely will pack it on. So you've just got to be a little bit, a little bit more, I think, discerning with that kind of stuff. Great. Uh, Last, one of the last questions, Dr. Jillian, I like asking the experts that we got on the other end. What are you working on now with your health or exercise? Like, are you incorporating anything you're trying to improve on? You know, it's funny. I've been, I just got back from almost um, two months in in Europe, kind of like you was on a long trip. And so I got out of, um, one of the habits I was really trying to cultivate and now getting back to is a yoga practice. Mm. I've several years ago, I did yoga for a few months and I've always been sort of like a hard, not a hardcore exerciser, but I'm a former professional figure competitor and a sprinter. And I always like lifted weights and did sprints and like, you know, it was always in the gym and stuff. And then I transitioned 
when I actually began writing the book, I transitioned more into like very low impact stuff and like long walks. And then I've recently, more recently begun incorporating yoga in. So that's, I'm working on yoga and walking. Like like, like a class or individual? Um, I am borrowing one of my friend's passwords for Yoga Glow. So Yoga Glow is like an online... Yeah, I'm not giving her the name, I'm not giving the name, um, but it's this online, you know, subscription site and you basically just log in and there's all classes. And so I go in the spare bedroom and throw the mat down and yeah. just, you know, have at it. Have at it. That's what I do with Netflix. So don't worry. We're on the same yeah. boat. I think most people do that, honestly. Borrow the password. Well, this is great. Uh, Dr. Jillian, again, your book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. Tell us a little yes. bit about the book, why you wrote it and where they can find it. So the book, it's, it's on Amazon, it's in Barnes and Noble, it's in like all your major bookstores, you can find it online. And essentially, the book is, is a culmination of all of my clinical experience. So the people who, when I started practice almost 10 years ago, the people who started to come to me were all people with gut issues. Like I had, when I was in school, I had no idea it was as prominent and prevalent as it is. So I essentially made the, created the book, wrote the book with my co-author, Jeanette Bessner, who's awesome. She did the food plan and all the recipes. Mm. Um, So essentially the book takes you through, I wanted to make it for the everyday person to be able to understand these concepts like really simply. So what the book is essentially is a walk through a normal digestive tract and then what can go wrong along the way. And then the next section is why things go wrong. So a lot of what we were talking about, like nutrition and stress and like all the drugs and blah, blah, blah. Then the next section is my, is the heart of the book. It's the fix your digestion gut restoration program, which are all those steps that we've talked about. And then there is the fourth section is all specific conditions. So heartburn and ulcer and constipation and IBS and SIBO, like there's all processes and protocols and ways you can tailor the program based on that. And then the very last section is all about kids. It's it's all on pediatrics. So I'm really proud of that last piece because there's really no gut books out there for kids. And so we were pumped to have that. So it's essentially, it's for the everyday person that literally has any digestive complaint, whether it's like just a chronic symptom, like I'm bloated all the time, or if it's a formal diagnosis, like I have Crohn's. And then there's other things in there like skin stuff and asthma and those types of things because of those really strong connections and links to the gastrointestinal system. Natural solutions for digestive health. Thanks for coming on, Jillian. Um, Phenomenal speaker. You're very articulate and you you got a lot of passion behind what you do. So I respect you for that, for sure. Thank you so much, Clark. I really appreciate it. You've been a great guest. Come back anytime. Oh, I sure will. Thank you. Bye.